Holy Spirit, your people call out for understanding. Bring to our yearning hearts and minds the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first reading is Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The voice of the Lord, powerful and full of majesty. Thanks be to God.
Our gospel reading this morning comes to us from Mark chapter 1, picking up right where we left off last week, verse 21 through 28. Listen for what the Spirit is speaking today. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed and kept asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let us pray. God of liberation. Confronting the powers that exclude the unclean and bind us to death. May we receive your word of authority, your rule of peace, your earthly holiness, which comes not to destroy, but to set free. Through Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, we pray. Amen. I had one brief but magical year at Princeton Seminary from 2007 to 2008. I'd already completed my Master's of Divinity degree at Reformed Theological Seminary the previous year, but I wanted to continue my studies because I needed a better story than the one that I had been taught. At Reformed Seminary, they taught me about a God who predestined some for heaven and others for hell, and that's just the way it is. And while I didn't like this vision of God or find it compelling, at the time I didn't see an alternative to it. And I remember praying in my first semester at RTS, God, if this is who you are, I don't have to like this about who you are. But there's nothing I can do about it. So I will still serve you. It was a conversion of sorts. A conversion not of love, but of submission. I mean, how can you love a God who is crueler and more capricious than you are? So I came to Princeton Seminary in search of a better story, one in which I didn't merely have to submit to God, but could love God. And thankfully, it didn't take long. At Princeton, they taught me about a God who doesn't just save a select few, but rather that God in Christ lives in solidarity with all humanity, uniting God's self to the entire human race. I was taught that Christ came to liberate all creation, and I remember my heart coming back to life. And I just knew that this story was true because it was the best news I had ever heard. I had one of those, um, I think it was third generation iPods, black and white screen with a little spin wheel. And I would walk across campus and play this Christmas song over and over again and just weep as I walked. The song was called Child in the Manger and the lyrics say, Child in the Manger, Infant of Mary, Outcast and Stranger, Lord of all, child who inherits all our transgressions, all our demerits on him fall. 
Once the most holy child of salvation, gentle and lowly, lived below. Now, as our glorious, mighty Redeemer, see him victorious over each foe. I would listen to that song and just weep because I had found a better story, one in which the outcast child made himself one with all of our failures in order to set us free. This gentle child, victorious over our foes, which means that not one speck of creation would be spoiled by evil because Christ had come to liberate No gospel writer emphasizes God's resolve to set creation free more than Mark. It's not a coincidence that in the story we read today, Jesus' first public act of ministry, we see him liberating a man from bondage. Because that's what Mark is all about. In Mark, we get to see a Jesus who has come to set people free. That this is what salvation looks like. And it begins with him teaching in the synagogue. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what he taught, but I think we're left to assume it's the same message that we heard last week, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the good news. So what does it look like when the kingdom of God comes near to us, we might wonder? Well, buckle your seatbelt because we're about to find out. For those who heard Jesus teach that day, they were riveted by his words and with good reason. Imagine actually believing that God was near at hand, that God is as close to you as your next breath. How many of us actually believe that? The great writer Annie Dillard compares church services to children playing with TNT. She writes, it's madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. The people who heard Jesus preach at the synagogue that day lashed themselves to their pews because he spoke with an authority that they had never heard before. And when comparing him to their normal pastors, there was no comparison. And some of you are thinking, yeah, Joel, some things have not changed. (laughs) And you'd be right. Because Jesus spoke with an unmatched authority that the rest of us imposters cannot hold a candle to. And the people were astonished. And that word astonished in Greek, it's not that they were impressed. It's more like they were shocked. The kind of shock you feel when lightning has struck nearby and you're just glad that you didn't get fried. That's what they felt that day. And if that wasn't enough, in comes this guy screaming, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, if you were there that day, I think you would have been reaching for your crash helmet because things just got real. Mark says this man had an unclean spirit, which is another way of saying that he was possessed by a demon. Now, what are we to do with that? Many modern readers understand demon possession as a pre-modern misdiagnosis of mental illness or some other neurological disorder, which means these stories can be dismissed as superstitions. 
But I think we look down on our ancestors a little too quickly. They may have understood realities that we moderns overlook. Latin American liberation theologians in the 20th century understood the New Testament's language of powers and authorities and principalities as institutions and structures. Let me explain what I mean. Just like a uh, bank is a workplace that has a building and employees that you can see and touch, so too does that same workplace have an invisible culture, an unseen spirituality that influences everything that takes place at that job. And when that culture of an institution, when it ceases to serve the people that it was designed to support, and it instead becomes self-serving and unaccountable, that institution becomes demonic. And this is a helpful way to understand the role that demons play in Mark and in the rest of the New Testament. Demon possession is not about individuals who've made poor moral choices. It's about institutions that have lost their way. And if that's the case, then what kind of institutional evil does this man represent in our reading? Well, we're in the synagogue, aren't we? So let me ask you, can religious institutions that were designed to serve and bless people instead become self-serving and unaccountable, such that the people that they were sent to free instead become held captive by them? Is that possible? Is that not the story of the church writ large in the 21st century? Religious institutions are often better known for protecting themselves and leaving people in bondage than they are for blessing the community and setting people free. This is sad, but no one can deny it. You may have seen in the news this week that the largest religious affiliation in our country is now what? None. N-O-N-E. More people identify now as having no religion than Catholic or Evangelical or anything else. Perhaps the institution of the church has lost its way. And Jesus is now cleansing us of unclean spirits so that we might be restored to our creative purpose. What if what looks like institutional failure may in fact be a long overdue cleansing? Have you come to destroy us? The man asks. I always wonder, who's included in the us? Surely, Jesus hasn't come to destroy the man in whom this unclean spirit has taken hold. Jesus is going to set that guy free. But what about the religious institution that this demon has taken hold of? Has Jesus come to destroy it? Well, that's what we get to watch for the rest of Mark's gospel the mounting conflict between Jesus and the religious institution that he threatens. And time and time again, these two will clash, and Jesus is going to come out the victor until by the end, the religious institution unleashes its strongest attack, which is the crucifixion itself. And when that happens, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to follow a crucified Savior who has come to set us free from the structures of evil? Now, of course, religion is only one institution in our world. There are many others. Corporations, law, politics, education, the pharmaceutical industry. 
all of them designed to serve people. And all of them can be corrupted. Each can become self-serving and unaccountable. In other words, demonic. And the Spirit of Christ is doing the same thing in our time that it was doing in Mark. Setting people free from institutions that enslave. And with the man in the synagogue, the individual is not to blame. He's a victim of the system that he didn't create. And that's true for us too. We don't fight against flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul says, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of wickedness. This means that our enemy is never another human being, ever. Even if that person is seeking to harm us. The enemy is always the system. Or better yet, the systems that dehumanize and hold us captive. And they are legion. Christ comes to set us free from those systems that they might be restored to their created intent to serve the common good. You see, Jesus didn't just come to save souls, but to redeem the entire creation, people, institutions, all of it, that not one speck of creation will be left outside of Christ's liberation project. This week, I went to see a medical professional for a checkup. And at this annual checkup, I was in the middle of the day and I wanted to get back here to get to work, to write this sermon, and things to do. And the medical professional asked me in the middle of my appointment, knowing that I was a pastor, you know, pastor, it's great just to be able to talk to other Christians sometimes. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> My wife is a friend who just came out as a lesbian. And we love her, but we had to tell her, sin is sin. Isn't that right, Pastor? I said, well, I don't really see it that way. And here's why. We went on to have a long, fruitful discussion. And it was absolutely clear to me is that this man wanted a way to live out his faith that allowed him to be free instead of holding him and his wife and their friend captive. That's what I was awakening to when I cried my way across campus in 2007. The realization that the only God worth believing in is the one who has come to liberate us all from every power that holds us captive. That the God that we need and most desperately want is the God we actually have. So the better story that Jesus invites us to is the one in which God will not rest until all of us are free. Christianity was always meant to be an abolitionist religion, one in which people are freed by their faith, not bound. For God is always on the side of liberation. So let us sing the good news that freedom is coming because Jesus is coming. Oh, yes, I know. Oh yes, I know.